Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. A podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode 50 Years on Broadway, Part 2. This is the second part of my conversation with Broadway actor, singer, dancer, director, and choreographer Leroy Reams, whose nine Broadway musicals span from Sweet Charity in 1966 to The Producers in 1996. And I'm very happy to say that he is still going strong. If you missed part one, you may want to listen to that episode first. We left off with Leroy leaving his job as a dancer on The Carol Burnett Show in Los Angeles and heading back to New York because he was determined to move out of the chorus and start playing principal roles. What an incredibly brave thing to do, to give up that money, to give up that security, to walk back to not having any idea what you might find in New York. Well, when I was doing Sweet Charity, I can't remember the famous casting lady out at Universal brought me in for an interview to become a contract player at Universal. And I went in for the audition and she looked at me and said, yeah, we could use a kid like you on the lot. You're dark, so you can do all the Italian Spanish things. (laughs) And I said, well, that's interesting because actually I'm Irish and I certainly can do the accents. But I also sing and dance. She said, well, we know that, but that's not really important now. Singing and dancing is an end. The only reason we're doing charity is for Shirley MacLaine. I said, well, then what is required? She said, well, you sign a seven-year contract, and we pay you three fifty a week. And then every six months or so, you get a raise. And I said, what is my out clause? She said, you don't have an out clause. You sign seven years, we own you. I said, well, how about you? Can you let go of me? She said, well, I can let go of you the next day. They can let go of you any time, but you have to stay for seven years. 
And I thought, my goodness, I'm going to stay in California and maybe do TV and bits and movies. And that's not what I wanted to do. And also seven years seemed like an eternity to me. And of course, at that time, the only variety show that was really successful was The Carol Burnett Show. And there was no chance for me to get ahead there because I was just a member of the chorus. So I thought, I've got to go back to New York. So I went back home and then Paul Rutledge got the showboat. They leased it from University of Indiana. So Paul said, if you stay and help me run the showboat, we'll give you credit for your master's degree. So I spent the summer doing that. And then in the fall, I went back to New York and immediately started working for Peter Gennaro on The Ed Sullivan Show. Because I I like making money and I've always worked. So I was doing that. But then I got an agent and I started auditioning for roles. And one of my auditions was for Will Parker at Lincoln Center because I had done a summer stock production of that in Mineola on Long Island with John Raitt. That's the first time I played Will Parker. Dennis Cole choreographed, and Dennis was one of Agnes DeMille's assistants, and Jimsy Delap was her disciple. Right. And so when they were going to do Oklahoma at Lincoln Center under Richard Rogers producing with Agnes DeMille's original choreography, but Jimsy Delap was going to choreograph, and Dennis was going to be her assistant. So that's how I got the audition, because I had done the show with Dennis. So I was told not to sing a Richard Rogers song at the audition because he didn't like people doing his songs. Because if you didn't do it correctly, you did a wrong lyric, he'd get upset. So I thought that I would impress Richard Rogers that I was really a singer too, just not a dancer. So I decided to sing Leonard Bernstein's Lonely Town to use my big voice. So I got about two notes out and he said, I don't want to hear you sing that song. You're auditioning for a comedy character. Don't you have a comedy song? And I said, well, no, Mr. Rogers. I said, but I can sing Kansas City. He said, well, why wouldn't you sing that? You'd sing it in the show. I said, I'd love to sing it for you. So I did two choruses of Kansas City. And he said, can you dance? And I said, yes, sir. He said, show me. So I had a dance routine that I did for him. And then he finished and he said, young man. I said, yes, sir. He said, is there anything you can't do? I said, no, sir, there isn't. And I got the job and I didn't read the script. He hired me from that audition. But in all fairness, I have to say, I'm sure Dennis told Jimsy about me, but that's all that I had to do with the audition and the part was mine. And Agnes DeMille came into rehearsals once the things were choreographed to approve them. The Kansas City, that wasn't really one of her signature pieces. So I think that whoever did that originally, Lee Dixon, I think initially it was whoever was playing the role, they kind of put their stuff into it. So I did what was taught to me, but we also added a few things and we made the ending longer. So we changed a few things. And when Agnes saw the number, she approved it. I was going to ask you about that because there's a great video of you dancing the Kansas City number outside at Lincoln Center. I assume it was for some TV promotion or something. And the choreography is sensational. And some of it is similar to what you see in other versions of Kansas City, but a lot of it is very different. I love that section where you're shooting all the cowboys. And there's a section where one of the cowboys does wings and you top him and then he tips his hat to you. All of that was new. So I was wondering, was that created on you? Was that given to you? Where did that come from? The only thing that I did, a lot of the leaps I did bigger because of my ballet training. And because I'm more balletic in my dancing, I had more space when I danced. I was a hoofer. 
So it became more balletic and bigger in scope as I moved. And then the end number where we did those steps, that was done quickly. And I said, no, no, what I'd like to do, I'd like to start it and then add two guys, then add four guys. And so we just keep doing it, yelling and screaming. I would go up stage, I'd run and I'd dive and they would catch me to put a button on the number, which would make the applause better. So it was things like that. And Agnes DeMille approved it. And Jimsy was very collaborative. But what was Agnes like? Were you intimidated by her? I remember being at several events with her in in later years when she was very imposing. But I wondered what she was like in rehearsal. She was, you know, crippled by that time. And she came in with a cane, I guess, from her strokes. And she had a big chair in the middle of the mirror. And she stood there as the empress, you know, on the throne. And then she would, you know, fix things. And it was fabulous to see what she would tell them and the images that she would give the dancers. And Graziella Danielle was one of the dancers. But Agnes didn't work so much with me because I only did the one number. And the other number, All or Nothing, was standard. You know, she was more interested in working with the ballet and doing Many a New Day and telling the girls about the brushing of the hair and making the birds fly and all of those images. It's always funny because everybody has a different image. Oh, no, they're scooting the chickens. No, it's the dove. So Agnes, of course, cleared up a lot of that stuff. And then Jimsy knew it to a degree. And I know I did uh, an evening of Rogers and Hammerstein down at the Muni. And Jimsy came in and restaged the pas de deux, I think, to Carousel. And the kids had learned. And then when Jimsy came in, I went to rehearsal that day because, you know, that's my thing. I want to watch the people do it. And listening to how Jimsy took the steps and told them what it was and how the music had to be played and how the lift had to go with the music. And so as Carol Channing's husband, Charles Lowe, always used to say, it's the difference between chicken salad and chicken shit. Once you get the real thing about what it's supposed to be. And a lot of people make fun of that. But if you know what it is and you treat it with respect, it's art. And if it's done correctly, it can't be better. People would say it's so old-fashioned. It isn't. It fits the piece. And if it's taught correctly, it should really be treasured and kept. And I think in many ways, it's the trappings that got old-fashioned, not the actual choreography. Mm -hmm. It's the sets, the costumes, it's the way the show was done that seemed dated, and it made the choreography seem dated to some people. Mm -hmm. But when you take it out and put it in a contemporary setting, I think it still works beautifully. Yes, it does. It does. Let's jump to Applause, 1970. And again, I assume this is part of your mission now to play roles. Yes. And this turns out to be a significant one for you. Yes. Tell us about how that came about. What was your process of getting into that show? Well, I had an agent by that time. And of course, the role was a singer-dancer. And we knew that it was a reinterpretation of Thelma Ritter from the movie. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be a gay hairdresser, which now seems so calm. But back then, it was a big deal. And as a matter of fact, my agent warned me and said, I don't know whether you should be playing a gay character. But I didn't even think about it, David. First of all, I am gay. I'm very proud and secure about that. So I thought, well, why shouldn't I be playing a gay hairdresser? And and I wouldn't play him stereotypically. I wouldn't want to do that. And it wasn't what Ron Field wanted either. They wanted him to be a real person, you know, and uh, of course he had to have a bit of a flair. So with the audition, my agent said, uh, they liked you very much. I think they're going to make an offer. Well, they didn't. Ron hired Garrett Lewis instead, 
who's a tall, good-looking dancer from California who is like a leading man-looking guy. And I was so depressed that I had lost the part. And Julie had asked me to do her act again. It was the third time. And I was going back to Covington to spend Thanksgiving with my family. And I was going to go to California. I was very depressed. And I was in a relationship with Bob Donahoe then, who became my husband, when we could legally do it. So I, I was with him for 50 years. And he's now gone, unfortunately, but, you know, we had a, a great time. And so when I got back, Juliet's manager called me and said, Julia, I want you to come out earlier. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to spend Thanksgiving with my family. But I, I had a Victoria Page moment from the red shoes. It's like the shoes just stopped. So I said, I don't want to do the job. And he said, well, you have to call Juliet. I'm not going to get him. And I called Juliet. And I was so sorry. I said, Julia, please forgive me. You know how much I love you. But I can't go back again. I can't go back. I have to return to New York. I just have to go back. And I did. I went back to New York and again, back on television, dancing in the chorus after doing Will Parker. I had to swallow my pride and very depressed. And that New Year's Eve, Bob got a big bottle of champagne for us and we made a toast. And I said, you know, that part should have been mine. I should have played that part. He said, well, there'll be other parts and Happy New Year. The next day, the phone rings. They fired Garrett Lewis. And I had to come in. And I mean, they were almost into run throughs. Wow. So I had to really learn everything quickly. And so they threw a script at me and Ron said, I'm so sorry and all of that. But anyway, I'm a professional. And so he said, now in the first scene, you come in and it's backstage and you go in and you go over and you stand at the end of the stage by where the closet is. You go over and stand by the closet. I said, okay. I said, well, when I come in, since they don't know who I am, can I carry a fall and be brushing it? And and I was introduced to Lauren Bacall. And I said, and Miss Bacall, I, and she said, my friends call me Betty. And I said, Betty. And she said, that's better. I said, I won't touch your hair, but at least I'll primp so they'll know that I'm the hairdresser, you know, because that would establish my character. And Ron said, okay, whatever, just do it and go over and stand by the closet. So they start the scene. The scene's going on and on and on, and they're stopping and starting. And finally, I raise my hand. I say, excuse me, when does this character get out of the closet? <laughs> well, Lauren Bacall laughed. She threw her head back, and that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. From that moment on, I can't explain it to you, David. We were like that. We started hanging out together. When we got out of town, I went to dinner with her. We became the characters offstage that we were on, and that became a friendship for my life. I always arrived at the theater, went in to see her first, and then I would get dressed, and then I would always go in at the end of the show to be with her because we would usually do things. So after the show, I would come down to her dressing room and I would walk her to the limo. And of course she would drop me off too. So I got limousine service too, but that's how it all began. I feel groggy and weary and tragic, punchy and bleary and fresh out of magic, but alive, but alive, but alive. I feel twitchy and bitchy and manic. Calm and collected and choking with panic, but alive, but alive, but alive. I'm a thousand different people, every single one is real. I'm a million different feelings, okay, but at least I feel. And I feel rotten, you're covered with roses. Younger than springtime and older than Moses. Frisky as a lamb. Lazy as a clown. Crazy, but I am alive. 
So I have a question. You're playing this gay character. It's a year after Stonewall. Were you aware, was Ron Field aware, were the creators of the show aware that they were making a statement, that they were doing something bold, that you're in essence a gay rights pioneer? Did you have any sense of that at the time? Not to the degree that it became, but yeah, they knew. And it was Tomlin and Green's idea, because they wrote Mm -hmm. the book, to take the Thelma Ritter character and make him a hairdresser. What the modern version of that character would be. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of stars, the hairdresser became like that person. And I was warned. They said, you're going to get stereotyped. But I didn't even think about it twice, David, because I was only concerned about, number one, having a role, and number two, being with Lauren Bacall and Comden and Green, Charles Strauss, Lee Adams. Why wouldn't I want to be in that company? And I just thought of it as an actor. You know, I'm going to play a character, and I'm not a hairdresser. And we didn't want him to be portrayed with that stereotypical swishy thing. We wanted him to be a real person. And why shouldn't I play those? As a matter of fact, the person that I chose to use as my image for that character was a hairdresser that was on Oklahoma. At the time, his name was John Qualia. And we became friendly. So that's who I based my character on. And actually, Tommy Toon in his book says he was the first person to play a gay character in Cison, not so. Actually, René Arbogenois played a gay character in Coco and referred to his boyfriend or whatever. But it wasn't as specific as applause. I now have that title as being the first openly gay character in And the big line was, Margot Channing says to Dwayne Fox, Dwayne, how would you like to take two lonely ladies out on the town tonight? And he said, well, I can't. I've got a date. And she says, bring them along. Now, that was rather tame to us and funny and subtle. But when we were out of town in Baltimore, and when we said that line, bring them along, there was like a gasp in the audience. And then we go to the gay bar. She's here. Oh, God, I can't believe it. Now, that's the first time a gay bar was ever on the stage, as far as I knew. And the audience was just like this. And when we entered the bar, it was all in pantomime. And I come on with Eve and Margot. And my boyfriend comes up to me and kisses me like in the mouth. Well, we come in and we go, the audience went, woo, like this. Wow. And then, of course, the joke was, then I introduced Margo in pantomime, and, of course, he puts out his hand to Margo Channing. He kisses me, but that's the joke, right? Well, honey, from that point on, the audience didn't laugh very much. And the next day, we go into rehearsal, and Ron said, Leroy, I said, I know, cut the kiss. So then what we did, we walked in, and I would hug him, and then, you know, he would extend his hand to Margo. But it was a thing back then. We didn't think of it that way because we're New Yorkers and all of that. It's show business. But yeah, it did have an effect. But in contrast to that, David, what has happened, a lot of gay men who were younger, that was a huge thing in their lives. And I have received this over and over again. Guys coming up to me saying, when I was young and I saw you in that show, you don't know what an effect that had on me. To see a gay man had substance and this and that. They said you were a huge image for us. And I never thought of it that way, but it's true. Absolutely. That same reaction that you're getting from that audience, you're having the equal reaction from young gay men and not so young gay men all across the country eventually when the show goes on tour because of this part that you helped to create. Yes. It really had a tremendous impact. It's
that visibility was so important. And it was important to Ron Field, too. Ron did not want that character to be a, a stereotype and being cheapened. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Do you have a spring birthday coming up? Let's make it epic with Big Air Trampoline Park inside Fieldhouse USA at the Polaris Mall. Get five extra jumpers for free with a spring birthday special when you book a 60, 90, or 120-minute birthday party online. And don't forget, all Big Air parties include all attractions, a personal party host, and more. Make it the best birthday party ever, and don't blow your budget. Book your party now at BigAirUSA.com Columbus. Big Air Trampoline Park inside Fieldhouse USA at the Polaris small. So tell us about Ron Field. It's somebody who we don't remember very well, even though he won two Tony Awards for applause for direction and choreography. And that was a giant hit show in its day. It was one of the defining shows of my uh, young life because it was the big show that opened when I was just at the right age for that to mean a lot to me. Sure. What was Ron's contribution? What was he like? What did he bring to the show that we should well, remember? To make a longer story longer, <laughs> I, I first met Ron when he came to California to do a TV show. And two other dancers and I were called in for a private audition because he needed an extra dancer. And at the audition, I wore a pair of navy blue dance pants. I had a red and white striped shirt. And in those days, in the 60s, we wore scarves. So I had a little scarf around my neck, which was blue and white polka dot. And I had white jazz shoes. And uh, so at the audition, Ron Field just didn't really even look at me. And I'm not bragging, but I knew I was the better of the three dancers there. He didn't take me. He took the one dancer and actually had an affair with him later. And uh, then he backed out and then he took the other dancer. And that was it. And then after that meeting, I did a, a special, the Sid Charisse special, where I danced with Sid Charisse. And Tony Charmley had a big party the night that was going to be on, invited all of us, including Sid. And we were going to watch the, the show on TV. Well, at that party was Ron Field. 
So as we're watching the special, of course, I'm dancing with Sid Charisse. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, Ron Field came up and said, I owe you an apology. He said, I didn't know who you were when you auditioned for me because all I could see was an American flag with that outfit that you had on. And I took a beat and I said, well, God forbid I could dance. I thought, you know, fuck you. I mean, you know, there's other people I can work for. So that was my initial thing with Ron Field. But then when I got the call for applause, Ron and I did become very friendly until his death. And he was wonderful on applause. And it was his first big responsibility. The first show he directed, he had done Cabaret, which is, by the way, some of the best choreography ever in the musical theater. That show was so brilliant. And Ron's work in it was brilliant. And Betty loved him. Betty loved Ron Field, and she was very dependent on him. They almost replaced Ron out of town because our reviews in Baltimore were mixed. The gay thing, one of the reviewers called it a lot of homo ho-hum. Oh, yeah. And Diane McAfee was certainly okay, but it wasn't working. The original Eve who got replaced by Penny Fuller. Yeah, and Penny Fuller made a, a big change in the show. She really did. She was a big reason that show was better. But anyway, they were insecure and never going to replace Ron Field. And Bacall stood by him and she said, look, I bought this show with Ron Field. You don't take Ron Field, get yourself another leading lady. So Ron stayed and got the Tony Award for Best Musical in Ron's work and Bacall. I can understand why Lauren Bacall felt so strongly about him because those numbers were so beautifully crafted to her level of talent, which was sensational in terms of star quality. Mm -hmm. But she was not an experienced musical theater performer. No, but she was musical. And that's what saved her. She understood the beat and she also had great style. And with that very commanding voice of hers, and no one could believe that she could do anything musical. So it was a great surprise to everybody. And she was a bass buffundo. I mean, you know, that's for sure. But she understood and she loved doing it. She really did. She was such a good sport. And we just all had a great love affair. Everybody connected with the show did. And when Penny Fuller came in, it was unfortunate for Diane. But Diane was a younger girl and she was dark and they liked that contrast. But it didn't stand up as competition as a woman. And Penny is such an experienced actress. I'll never forget her first rehearsal because everybody in the company was insecure at that point because I was a replacement, which happened just before they went out of town. Now they're replacing Eve Harrington. So everybody is like this. But Penny came in and we started the rehearsal and Penny walked in as the character and she did a little thing where she looked at all of us and then she looked at Lauren Bacall as Margot Channing and something happened in her. And I went, ooh, look out. She knows what she's doing. Penny didn't need direction. And at the end of the first act, when there's that confrontation, and, you know, and Eve says, paraphrasing, please forgive me, Miss Channing. I said, oh, please believe me. And, of course, Bacall would look and say, oh, I do. I do. And, of course, she would go into Welcome to the Theater. And what Diane would do was just put her head down and kind of shrink off. Not Penny. Penny looked, and Penny dismissed Bacall as she walked off. Well, Bacall tore into that number with such vengeance. And then when she finished it, Bacall threw up her arms. She said, thank God I've got an actress. And Penny embraced her, and that was the beginning. 
When we got to Detroit, the reviews were much better. It was Penny's performance that did that. Is there anything specific uh, about Ron Field putting a number together that you remember? Any specific memories about the way he shaped things? The applause number stayed the same from the very beginning. It never changed. And it was so odd that in a musical, a character who has nothing to do with the plot whatsoever walks out on stage and does the title song with a big production number and has absolutely nothing to do with the plot. And wins and then, a Tony Award. And, and wins it while well, she was nominated. <laughs> oh, she was nominated. She was nominated. Yeah. Melba Moore won that year. Oh, that's right. That's and right. again, friendships that you make, Bonnie and I were bosom buddies from that moment on until the day she died. And she's no longer a gypsy. Never changed. Those two production numbers never changed. The only thing that happened out of town, they put in Something Greater, the mm-hmm. song at the end of the show. Outside of that, nothing dance-wise ever changed. But Ron was a choreographer. And his stuff wasn't always easy. It could be very complicated, all that head jerking and all that little stuff that we did. But it was very effective. And he got the Tony. Next on Broadway for you is Lorelei. We're just a kiss apart And yet we dance on and on Carol Channing first rose to stardom in the 1951 musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Lorelei was a sort of revisal of that show that would give Channing the opportunity to return to the role of Lorelei Lee 23 years later. Leroy played the role of Henry Spofford opposite Tamara Long, and the cast included Peter Palmer, Brandon Maggart, and Dodie Goodman. Have started to Ernie Flat is the choreographer. So no, actually, Joe Layton in the beginning. Oh, it started with Joe Layton. I didn't know that. Joe Layton was the director choreographer. We went on tour. They replaced him with uh, Condon and Green became the directors, and Ernie Flat became the choreographer. And Ernie didn't really change much because Ernie said, There's nothing wrong with it. It works, you know. And then Ernie had to go back because he had commitments. And then Robert Tucker took over the choreography. Mm -hmm. And then they put in a new number for Tamara and I called Let's Live in Sin, which was just awful. (laughs) And it was embarrassing to even do. I mean, I can go through it if you want to get into it to tell you about the number. First, I'd like to hear about Joe Layton, who is another great name that did so many shows, Sound of Music. Again, a name that's sort of lost to us today. George Uh, M. He did George George M. M. Joe Layton's 19 Broadway musicals also include the choreography for Once Upon a Mattress and direction and choreography for No Strings and Barnum. Is this your only time you worked with him? The only time I worked with him, but I loved it. I loved Joe. I liked his work as a director and as a choreographer. We got along great. And I, I thought his work in the show was terrific. I don't know why they changed it. Well, what happened, we, we opened in Oklahoma City. We were sold out every night. We got great reviews. But then we went to Dallas next, and the reviews weren't so good. And Joe had taken a week's vacation because he was tired, and he didn't want them to find him. So they considered that as deserting the show, and they fired him. Then they brought in Ernie and Condon and Green, and we were on tour for a year. And we came in every day for rehearsal, and we got an extra paycheck because they went beyond the limit of rehearsing, which didn't bother us at all. We liked having the money. But we worked on that show changes for a year. 
And then finally they put in that number, Let's Live in Sin, which wasn't good. And finally they took it out. And then they gave Carol yet another solo number. And as Dodie Goodman said, if she wanted to do a nightclub act, why did they hire all of us? And <laughs> then when we got to California, they brought in Robert Moore as a director and mm-hmm. Peter Gennaro as a choreographer. And he redid I Love What I'm Doing, a tap number for Tamara Long. So then that's how we went through four directors and four choreographers during wow. the year. Step on the gas and step to the rhythm that's class. Hey, 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 this is the way we keep you cool with Coolidge. What a relief you get when the rhythm has gotcha, gotcha. Hail to the chief, we keep you cool with Coolidge. He's our pal, we keep you cool with pal. Young folks, old folks, shake a leg. It's the cat's meow. Oh, wow. And how? Even if Then Lorelei opened at the Palace Theater, and I played the Palace four times, so it was my good luck house. And I'm a lucky guy because all my Broadway shows were respectable runs. And, of course, 42nd Street... eight years. Who writes the words and music for all the girly shows? No one cares and no one knows. Who is the handsome hero? Some villain always frays. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Leroy Reams will take us inside the creation of 42nd Street, share his views on the genius of Gower Champion, and relive all of the drama of that show's legendary opening night. What do you go for? Go see a show for. Tell the truth, you go to see those beautiful days. You spend, you go for. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This really will help other people who may be interested discover Broadway Nation as you have. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. What do you go for?
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 